Well, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and follow with me as I read, starting in verse 51. Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we need you this morning to help us to receive the word. We need you to help us to live according to it, to accept it, and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, help me as I speak. Strengthen me to speak clearly and open up our hearts. We know that nothing can be done apart from your Spirit, so we ask that you would be at work now. We commit this time to you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 1811, John Hasseltine of Bradford, Massachusetts, received an extraordinary letter from the aspiring missionary Adoniram Judson, asking for permission to marry his daughter, Anne. And part of that letter reads this way. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen save through her means from eternal woe and despair. Wow, what a letter. What a letter to write to your future father-in-law. Now, we rightly admire men like Adoniram Judson, men who turned their backs on the world and followed their Savior. And if you know anything about Judson's life, you know that he suffered greatly for Jesus Christ. And what he wrote in this letter, much of it would actually come true. But the question for us to consider this morning is this. When Judson left everything to follow Christ, was he going above and beyond the call of duty? Or was he merely living out, quote-unquote, normal Christianity? Or to ask the question another way, are all Christians called to this type of all-out devotion to Christ? Or are some Christians exempt from the call to leave everything for Christ's sake, while others, kind of like the spiritual version of Navy SEALs, are uniquely called to make such sacrifices? Now, these aren't just random questions. These are the sorts of questions that our passage this morning tackles. 
So it behooves us to pay attention to the word today, to tune in, to consider what it means to follow Christ and whether we're in line with that plan. So let's, let's look at our passage in Luke 9, starting in verse 51. Ever since Jesus launched his, his public ministry back in Luke chapter 4 in Nazareth, he's been operating in Galilee, which is kind of the northern region of Israel. And we've seen his authority displayed through miracles. We've seen him forgive sins. We've seen him reveal himself to unexpected outsiders. Uh, but here in Luke 9, we're getting a clear picture of what Christ is going to accomplish. It's like Luke is holding up a pair of binoculars and he's just turning that little crank so that Christ's mission comes into clear focus. So back in verse 21, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer many things, be rejected by the religious leaders, be killed and rise again after three days. And then during his transfiguration, we find out that this is going to happen at Jerusalem. And then last week, we saw Jesus foretell his sufferings yet another time. He told his disciples in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So it's quite clear that Christ's suffering is right around the corner by the time we get to verse 51 here in Luke 9. And Luke says this explicitly where our text begins. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. So Christ's departure is imminent now. Now, this is a hinge in Luke's gospel. Christ's ministry in northern Israel is complete, and it's time for him to head south towards Jerusalem to the end point of his mission. And so from here all the way to the middle of chapter 19 in Luke, we'll be following Jesus as he makes that journey. And when Luke says in verse 51 that Christ is going to be taken up, the word he uses is referring to his ascension back to heaven. But really, all that Jesus will accomplish is in view when he gets to Jerusalem. You know, his rejection and suffering, his death on the cross, his resurrection, that'll all culminate in him ascending back to heaven. And we should note the language that Luke uses here to describe his focus on Jerusalem. Look again at verse 51. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And if you look at verse 30 or 52, if you're reading the ESV like I am, it says, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Uh, but actually, if you read that in the Greek, the original language, it says he sent messengers ahead of his face. And then in verse 53, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So why is Luke using this language? Well, Luke is alluding back to Isaiah 50, which we read earlier, but I want to reread some of what God's servant says in that passage. In Isaiah 50, it says this, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. See, Isaiah 50 describes God's chosen one facing brutal suffering. I mean, he's being beaten, his beard's getting ripped out, that would hurt immensely. He's being spit at, 
And it's clear that he's suffering because of his obedience to God. That's why it says, I was not rebellious. That is, he didn't rebel against God's will by resisting this torture that he's facing. Yet despite his suffering, this servant's resolve is unshakable. He knows that even though his predicament is shameful in the moment, ultimately God will vindicate him. And therefore he sets his face like a flint. That is like a hard rock resolve to carry out God's will. See, Luke wants us to identify Jesus as this suffering servant. The shameful suffering that Isaiah describes points ahead to the shameful suffering that Christ is about to endure at Jerusalem on the cross. And just like the suffering servant in Isaiah, Christ embraces the suffering. He doesn't turn his face from it. He entrusts himself to God's deliverance, and he sets his face like a flint to accomplish God's will. See, Luke is holding Christ forth as the model follower of God. He's the one who never wavered in his resolve to carry out God's will. And so as Jesus begins the journey toward Jerusalem, he sends messengers ahead of him, and they make preparations for him in a village of the Samaritans. Now to get to Jerusalem from where Jesus is up in Galilee, the quickest route was to go through Samaria, which is a region in the central part of Israel. Uh, And to track with what's going on in this text, we do need to know a little bit about the Samaritans. So just a quick little history lesson. Back in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel was split in two soon after King Solomon died, right around 930 BC. And you may remember the the south stayed with Solomon's son, Jeroboam. That became known as the nation of Judah. The northern tribes, they broke off and they followed a guy named Jeroboam. So Jeroboam and the northern Israelites had to come up with their own alternative version of of Judaism because Judah in the south, they kept Jerusalem, which is where God's temple was. uh, And they maintained all the Levitical priests because Jeroboam kicked them out of northern Israel. So the northern kingdom, they started worshiping God at their own alternative places of worship. Their capital was Samaria instead of Jerusalem, and Jeroboam kind of appointed his own priests. While northern Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in 722, uh, but a small remnant remained in that land. And while it appears that there was a lot of assimilation with other nations at this time, there were some who continued to practice this alternate version of Judaism, and these are the Samaritans of Jesus' day. So they only accepted the Torah as the word of God, which is the first five books of the Bible. And they actually tweaked their version of the Torah to suggest that God should be worshipped at a place called Mount Gezerim, which was actually in their territory, not at Jerusalem. So naturally, there's a lot of hostility between these Samaritans and the mainline Jews. You know, the Jews wouldn't associate with them. They kind of saw them like, like cultists, like, like fake pretend Jews. And in fact, if a, a super devout Jew would often not even travel through Samaria. they go all the way around, even though it made their journey longer. So we can kind of understand why the Samaritans don't welcome Jesus in verse 53. Right? His face is set to go to Jerusalem, not to Mount Gezerim, where they believe that God should be worshipped. And we can also understand 
where James and John are coming from in verse 54 when they ask Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And it's just kind of funny to, to just think about what it would have been like for these guys to even ask Jesus that question. I mean, can, can you just picture it in your mind's eye? It's like, hey, Jesus, come over here for a second. Um, you know, we notice these Samaritans aren't really welcoming you. And so, you know, James and I were thinking, let, let's go stand over here so we don't get singed. And then we'll call down some brimstone and we'll turn these guys into charcoal. What do you think of that idea, Jesus? See, they're not just pyromaniacs. They didn't like the Samaritans like most Jews. And, you know, they understood that the Samaritans' rejection of Jesus and of Jerusalem where Jesus is heading is wrong. They, they understood that. But we see in verse 55 that Jesus rebukes his disciples because of their impulse to destroy the Samaritans. And while Luke doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus says, it's clear from the context that the disciples aren't accepting what it means to follow Christ. See, following Jesus does not look like calling down fire from heaven to incinerate your enemies. It looks not like enacting judgment on others, but embracing suffering like Jesus. It looks what, like what Jesus told his disciples back in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It looks like what he told them in verse 48. He who is least among you all is the one who is great. See, Jesus' face is set toward Jerusalem. He's ready to endure hardship, including this rejection by the Samaritans. But the disciples don't have their game face on. So Jesus, unlike the disciples, responds to rejection with humility. Instead of judging the Samaritans, he just humbly goes on to another town. And as he continues his journey, Jesus clarifies what it actually means to follow him. So let's pick up our text in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And, another, and to another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So as Jesus and his disciples continue their journey, Luke records three interactions between Jesus and what we could say are potential followers of Jesus. And in each interaction, it seems like the potential follower is genuinely interested in being Christ's disciple. But in each case, Jesus clarifies what it means to follow him. And it turns out that following Jesus demands more from these potential followers than they had expected. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how these would-be followers respond to Jesus. Because the emphasis isn't so much on them, per se, 
The point is that following Jesus requires leaving. It requires leaving everything else behind and embracing Christ's priorities. That's the upshot of these little exchanges here. So the first would-be follower approaches Jesus in verse 57 and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And on the surface, this guy's commitment to Jesus seems quite admirable, doesn't it? But Jesus' response makes it clear that this potential disciple doesn't really understand how much following Jesus will cost him. Now he says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is comparing himself to lowly creatures like foxes and birds. And he's essentially saying, look, even foxes and birds, critters that nobody cares about, they have dwelling places. But the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head at night. I think it's striking that he says this right after his rejection by the Samaritans because it's likely that he didn't actually have a place to lay his head that very night as he's saying these words. And the implication of what Jesus says here is this. If you want to follow me, you, just like me, must embrace a life of discomfort and suffering. You can't follow Jesus and simultaneously pursue an easy, comfortable life. You have to leave the pursuit of ease and comfort behind and embrace all the toils and sufferings and inconveniences that come with being Christ's disciple. And not only this, but following Jesus requires leaving family. That's the upshot of this next interaction between Jesus and a potential follower in verse 59. In this case, Jesus calls out to someone and says, follow me. And he replies with what seems like a very reasonable request. He says, let me first go to bury my father. By the way, burial was very, very important to the Jews. Not only because corpses would quickly rot under the hot sun, so it was kind of an urgent matter, but also because it was dishonorable to leave bodies unburied in Judaism. But how does Jesus respond? Well, he says, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, what's going on here? Because it seems like Jesus is being a bit, a bit harsh with this guy, doesn't it? I mean, this guy's dad just died, or, or maybe his dad's just close to death. We don't really know. But in either case, his son wants to honor him by, by burying him. So that doesn't seem to be such a bad thing. Why does Jesus seem to react so strongly to him? Well, there is actually a problem with this man's response to Jesus. And the problem is the little word, first. When Jesus says, follow me, he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. See, Jesus doesn't have any qualms with this guy burying his dad per se. The problem is that for this potential follower, burying his dad takes priority. It comes first ahead of following Jesus. He's got it backwards. He should first follow Jesus and then worry about burying his father. See, having family obligations is not a valid reason to delay following Jesus. And so Jesus calls this would-be follower to leave his father behind when he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He's using a play on words here. He's saying, leave the dead, that is the spiritually dead who aren't concerned with following me. Let them worry about burying their own physically dead friends and family. But you, you concern yourself with following me and spreading my gospel. The implication is that those who aren't willing to prioritize Christ over their families are spiritually dead. They're not truly his followers. So if this would-be follower of Jesus is to become a true follower, he must be willing to leave his father behind for the sake of Christ. And that brings us to the third interaction between Jesus and a potential follower, starting in verse 61. Someone claims, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say farewell to those at my home. Now, it's likely that this request goes beyond merely just asking to kiss his mom goodbye or something like that. The connotation behind saying farewell is the idea of taking leave of your home or setting your affairs in order. See, this would-be follower probably has some personal business to attend to, some responsibilities to manage at home before he's ready to follow Jesus. And notice again, that little word first shows up, doesn't it? Let me first say farewell to those at my home. See, he's prioritizing his own personal obligations ahead of following Christ. <clears throat> and Jesus' reaction to this request drives that point home. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, you don't have to be a farmer to know if you're plowing and you're constantly looking over your shoulder, you're not going to plow straight. And you'll prove yourself to not be qualified as a farmhand. And in the same way, if you want to work for Jesus as his follower, but constantly look behind you, that is, you're constantly prioritizing worldly concerns instead of Christ's concerns, then you prove yourself to be unfit to be Christ's disciple. The implication is that Christ's agenda must be the one and only focus of a true follower. So why are Christians called to leave everything behind for Christ's sake? Or rather, are all Christians called to leave everything for, behind for Christ's sake, like I asked in the beginning? Well, the answer is a clear yes. All Christians are required to leave everything behind for Christ's sake. But why would anyone do that? What would motivate someone to be willing to leave all that they hold dear for the sake of Jesus Christ? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but two answers seem especially relevant to our passage this morning. One is because following Jesus is the only path to eternal life. Remember what Jesus said earlier in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, your eternal destiny, whether you reap the glories of heaven or the torments of hell, depends on whether you're willing to lose your life for Christ's sake. And friends, it's far better to lose your life now 
and thereby save your soul than to gain the whole world pursuing whatever you want and to lose your soul in the end. And I'm fearful for some who may be listening, either here in this room or maybe online, who, who perhaps don't know Jesus Christ, who aren't following Jesus Christ. You're not safe. It's not safe to not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. You either gain your life now and lose it later, or you lose your life for Christ now and gain it later. But see, Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you. Sinners who want to chart their own path through life instead of following Him. So I call on you today, if you're an unbeliever, to repent of your sin, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, to leave your sin behind and follow Jesus Christ. So one reason to follow Christ is because it's the only path to eternal life. But also because Jesus is a worthy leader. You know, great leaders never ask their followers to do something that they themselves are unwilling to do. And this holds true with Jesus Christ. No amount of sacrifice that we can make to follow Christ holds a candle to the sacrifice that He made for us when He died on the cross for sinners. And so I ask you, if Christ so died for us, should we not die for Him? And if Christ left heaven and took up a cross for us, should we not leave whatever little trinkets capture our hearts and take up our cross for Him? See, that's the only response that makes sense to such a wonderful, undeserved Savior. Like the hymn says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So let's get practical. What does it look like for you and I to follow Jesus? Well, we should recognize that the way following Jesus manifests itself looks a bit differently for us than it did for those to whom Jesus interacted with on the road to Jerusalem. See, they were in a very unique situation of being physically with Jesus. You know, for them to follow him, it quite literally meant leaving whatever else they had going on and journeying with him to Jerusalem. So, for instance, with a guy whose father died, he had to literally choose whether to join Jesus as Jesus is walking along the road or whether to bury his father. It doesn't follow that if one of us has a parent who dies, that we shouldn't bury them because we're so devoted to following Jesus. See what I'm saying? That's a unique circumstance. The underlying principle that we have to leave everything to follow Jesus still stands, but the specific way that this idea plays out in our lives looks a bit different. So what does it look like for you and I? Well, I think it looks like forsaking all other firsts. Following Jesus is an intentional decision to make him first and to abandon all other competing firsts that threaten to take first place in our lives. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. That's the mindset of following Jesus. We must make Christ and his agenda first in all realms of life. So, for instance, Christ has to come first over comfort and convenience. 
you know, I think we're susceptible to thinking that life should just be easy. <laughs> and we often just have an expectation that things should just be easy for us. It, it, it just should be that way, right? And, you know, maybe we have different ideas of what an easy, comfortable life would look like. Maybe for some of us, it's a second home on the beach. Or maybe it's having the leisure to pursue some hobby or take lots of cool vacations. Or maybe we just want our relationships to be easy. You know, never any conflict, super fulfilling, no work. But following Christ isn't convenient or comfortable. Remember, he didn't even have a place to lay his head. So following involves leaving those desires for the easy life behind. That is not allowing those desires to take first place, but making Christ first and submitting to a more difficult life of sacrifice. And Christ has to come first over family too. You know, that little motto, family first, it sounds so right, doesn't it? I mean, who could have any issues with family first? Well, I don't know about you. It seems like Jesus does in our text today. You can't come away from this passage thinking that Jesus is okay with a family first approach to life. He said to the man who wanted to bury his father, let the dead bury their own dead. You leave them and you follow me. See, not family first. Jesus first. And you may be thinking, well, Ben, doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to take care of our families? Well, yeah, it does. In fact, 1 Timothy 5 says if anyone doesn't take care of those in his household, he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. But why does the Bible tell us to take care of our families? Not because our families are the ultimate goal. It's because our duty to our families is part of our greater duty to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We should care for our families because we're following Christ. We're not free to put our families first, living for them instead of Jesus Christ, in place of following Jesus Christ. And this must be said, ultimately our loyalty must be to Christ and not family. So for example, if following Christ is upsetting to our families because we don't share their values, or we don't see them as often as they might want us to, that's a cost we've got to be willing to pay if we're going to follow Jesus Christ. Then Christ has to come first in the life agenda realm. You know, not every believer is called to be a missionary like Adoniram Judson. But every believer must be willing to be an Adoniram Judson if that's what God wants for them. See, God's the potter. We're just a clay vessel. And God has the prerogative to use us how he wants to. And we don't really have the right to say no. You know, we don't get to say, I'll follow you, Lord, but not if it means living far from my family, or not if it means having a relatively low standard of living, or not if it means giving up this or that enjoyable activity or this or that relationship. See, we don't get to say that. God gets to set our life agenda. And don't misunderstand me, because I do think that God has wired us differently. He's given us individual personalities and, and gifts and desires. And I think that helps us discern what God's will is for our lives. But I'm talking about our mindset. I'm talking about whether we consider our lives as belonging to us or to God. Do we give God the freedom to set our life agenda? See, if we're to truly follow Christ, he has to come first 
we have to be willing to leave any other competing firsts behind. So how do we get there? How do we go from knowing that we're supposed to leave these things behind for Christ's sake to actually doing it? Well, I think at least two things are helpful. I think we need to accept and we need to decide. First, we need to accept that true Christianity requires leaving. We must come to grips with the reality that there's no such thing as a non-following Christian. Of course, that following isn't perfect, but it is real. It's real following. The pattern of a Christian's life is following the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Jesus says here in Luke 9 is edgy. It's black and white. It's meant to have kind of give us a strong reaction, but it's not hyperbole. He's not exaggerating. He's not overstating his point to make a case. It's 100% true that following Jesus requires you to leave everything else behind. So, so we've just got to f- accept that. We've got to accept that leaving is necessary, that it's fundamental to real Christianity. So we accept the necessity of following Christ, and then we decide to follow Christ. You know, those of you who are married like I am know that just because you made vows to your spouse to love and to serve them on your wedding day, that doesn't mean that you don't have to continuously, day by day, make that decision. You know, just because you loved and served your spouse yesterday doesn't mean that you don't have to decide to do it again today. And I think that's what deciding to follow Jesus looks like. It's not so much an event. It's more of a lifestyle. We have to continuously decide to, to follow. Day by day, moment by moment, we must choose to leave whatever competing firsts are enticing us and make real life choices to put Christ first instead. So I want to call on you this morning to decide to follow Jesus. And I want to say to you young people, decide to follow Jesus. Make Jesus what your life is all about. And young people, don't waste your life on lesser things than following Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a day that's saturated with all sorts of triviality. You can spend an enormous chunk of your life on things like your phone or social media or Netflix. None of that's wrong in and of itself. But young man, young woman, this life is the only life you get. You don't get another one. And it's going by really fast. And the only thing that matters at the end of the day is if you made your life about Jesus Christ and his agenda. So young people, young person, leave vanity and triviality, leave that stuff behind and follow Jesus. You won't be disappointed at the end of the day if you do that. And I want to say to you parents to decide to follow Jesus when it comes to your kids. You know, I've noticed something, parents. When it's somebody else's kid that wants to move far away to do something ambitious for God's kingdom, like maybe being a missionary, yeah, everyone can get behind that. Yeah, it's someone else's kid. But when it's our own kids, that's that's harder, isn't it? See, we, we love our kids. We care about their safety. We want them to be well off. 
and, and we want to be with them. And, and quite frankly, we want our kids to give us like 47 grandkids. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we desire, isn't it? I mean, I got little kids. I'm already thinking about that. You know, my daughter's name is Chloe, which in Greek means fertility. And, uh, yeah, I know she's only four months old, but I'm hoping for some fertility someday, if you, if you know what I'm saying. But see, Christ's agenda for your kids comes first. Your goal in parenting shouldn't be to raise your kid, should be to raise your kids in such a way that they follow Jesus. And I know that God ultimately has to do that in your kids' lives, but that's what we're shooting for in our parenting. And that means, parents, that we should be open-handed with our kids. See, they belong to God. He gave them to us. He gets to decide how he uses them. And we have to hold those natural desires for family get-togethers and grandchildren, etc., with an open hand. And we should strive to be like John Hasseltine, who I mentioned in the beginning, who let his daughter marry Adoniram Judson and never saw her again. I mean, that's a real sacrifice for parents to make. See, following Jesus may come at a cost to you, parents, when it comes to your kids. It may mean that your kids don't live near you or you can't see them for Christmas. And there's no God-given right to see your kids every Christmas. It may mean that your kids choose to stay single and they don't opt into your grandchild production program. So parents, follow Jesus by doing everything you can to help your kids to follow Jesus, even if that comes at a cost to you. And I want to say to you older folks, decide to keep following Jesus without growing weary. I know that many of you have been following for a long time. Many of you have made sacrifices for Christ. And I know you're tired. I know you're tempted to just kind of check out. But I want to say to you older saints, don't, don't do that. Give Christ your last full measure of devotion. Persevere in the faith. Keep on following Him. To all my brothers and sisters, I say, let's decide right here, right now, that we're going to follow Jesus as individuals and as a church. Let's resolve to leave everything behind for the sake of Him who left everything behind for us. Let's resolve to follow Jesus no matter what sufferings and difficulties and inconveniences come our way. And let's resolve to not have any firsts besides Christ. May God give us the grace to leave and to follow all the days of our life. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a difficult passage. There's some things in here that are hard to interpret, but, but really the difficulty is that It's hard to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's just a hard passage to accept. But Lord, when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ and we think about all that He left to win us to Himself, when we think about the incredible, incalculable cost that He paid for our sins on the cross, we realize that he has every right to call us to follow Him. 
And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us grace to decide to follow Jesus today. I pray that you give us grace to leave behind any competing firsts that are taking the front seat in our lives and to make Christ and His agenda first for us. Lord, use this Word to move us forward in our following of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for Him. And we commit all these things to you in His name. Amen.